Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Ben Johnson unpacks what tax changes could be in store for ETF investors. Jason Kephart fills us in on why asset managers are teaming up. Russ Kennel discusses well-regarded funds having a tough year. And Tim Steffen has some year-end tax planning tips for us. Let's get started. Here is Ben Johnson from Morningstar Research Services with Susan Jabinski from Morningstar, Inc. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. There's some talk in Congress of changing the way exchange-traded funds are taxed. Joining me today to unpack the proposal and discuss its impact on investors is Ben Johnson. Ben is Morningstar's Global Director of ETF Research. Thanks for being here, Ben. Thanks for having me, Susan. So let's start out with a little bit of a primer about how ETFs are taxed today. How's it work? Well, it's important to understand that ETFs are really taxed no differently than traditional mutual funds. So when ETFs distribute taxable capital gains, investors will have to pay capital gains tax on those taxable capital gains distributions. When ETFs distribute income to their shareholders, they'll have to pay income taxes on those distributions of income. That is no different than traditional open-ended mutual funds. Now, what is different is the frequency, specifically, of taxable capital gains distributions that we see coming from ETFs, which tend to be much fewer, much further between, and when they do happen, much smaller in magnitude than what we've seen from open-ended mutual funds in recent years. And why that is, is because ETFs have disproportionately benefited from the ability to push securities out of their portfolios on an in-kind basis. So they're not selling stocks and bonds, they're handing them over to another market participant uh, when it comes time to, to meet redemptions or to make necessary adjustments to the portfolio, to turn the portfolio over. And because they're not directly selling those underlying securities in the market, they're not unlocking any embedded gains. Now, mutual funds, when they're either turning over their portfolio or meeting redemption requests, more often than not are going to have to go into the market and sell those securities, realize gains in the process, and pass those gains on to shareholders in the mutual fund, irrespective of whether those fund shareholders were selling or not. So what ETFs have in effect is sort of a tax deferral mechanism by virtue of the fact that they're able to push securities out in kind. It's important to note, mutual funds can do this too. They have done it too. They reserve the right to do it. But most mutual fund investors, when they go to sell their position in a mutual fund portfolio, aren't going to be a big fan of getting a few thousand stocks pushed across the table to them. Might not even be logistically feasible. So largely for matters of convenience and and logistics, this is a very rare occurrence in mutual funds where it's par for the course. It's very commonplace in ETFs and explains a huge increment of ETFs relative tax efficiency over open-ended mutual funds. So then, Ben, what's in the proposal? What, What should change according to the proposal? So the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, Ron Wyden, has pushed across a more sweeping proposal, but one of the elements of that proposal is aimed specifically at the tax loophole that allows registered investment funds to do exactly what I just described, to get rid of securities from the portfolio on an in-kind basis and avoid any tax consequences as a result because they're not 
directly selling them. Now, this would disproportionately affect ETFs for all the reasons that I've described and make them incrementally less tax efficient than they are today. And their tax efficiency, frankly, has been a primary point of appeal, uh, most notably and most understandably, among investors who are allocating taxable money to them. So why is this proposal on the table? What is it trying to achieve? Well, I think this proposal, as I mentioned before, is, is really just one element of a more sweeping proposal that's aimed at taxing people who to date either haven't been paying as much tax as they probably should be or any tax at all. So getting swept up in the mix here or, or, or ETFs. Uh, and I would argue unfavorably so because ETFs are a fundamentally different vehicle. We're not talking about carried interest exemptions here. We're talking about a very democratic vehicle, a vehicle that's owned by investors of all types, of all levels of income, of all level of levels of assets. And irrespective of whether you've got a billion dollars invested in an ETF or $1,000 invested in an ETF with taxable money, you are benefiting from the status quo, the way that ETFs operate today uh, from their current tax efficiency vis-a-vis -vis traditional open-ended funds. So, Ben, what do, you, what do you make of this proposal? How likely do you think it's, to gaze into your crystal ball, how likely do you think it is to really pass? Well, I think this proposal is a, a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad idea, quite frankly, for, for all the reasons I've just described, because uh, it's not just large investors that are benefiting from the status quo. It's also, frankly, a, a step in the wrong direction. If anything, I would argue that investors should pay the taxes that they owe when they owe them. And as it stands today, that's not the case for investors in open-ended mutual funds, many of whom have been saddled with capital gains taxes over years now, not on an accord of their own behavior, but the behavior of investors in the fund uh, around them that in many cases are redeeming their shares for a variety of reasons. So if anything, I would argue that the fairer treatment would be to treat traditional open-ended mutual funds and ETFs equivalently. Again, to have investors pay the taxes that they owe when they owe them, which I think is not only fair, but also would put the United States on par with other major fund markets around the world where that is how fund investors are currently taxed as it stands today. So uh, lastly, Ben, if I'm an ETF investor, what, is this, what does this mean for me today? What it means today is absolutely nothing. Uh, the, the call to action is, is, is inaction for the time being. I think there's a very low probability that this ultimately will see the light of day. And I think that probability is very low because it is very unpopular, uh, not just among providers of, of ETFs, but frankly, among individual investors, irrespective of how much money they have allocated to ETFs and taxable accounts today, the fact that they've been able to defer those taxes, haven't been saddled with taxable capital gains, means that they've got more of their money that is compounding to their benefit over a long period of time. And then come one day, 20, 30 years down the road, when they do ultimately liquidate those positions, at least in theory, the treasury is going to get more money than they would if they had been taxing them all along the way. So I just, I don't think it's a good idea I think for a variety of reasons, most of which I've described, this isn't something that, again, will see the light of day in my mind.
Well, Ben, thank you for your time today and for your perspective and walking us through the various issues related to the proposal. We appreciate it. I appreciate you having me. Thanks, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, Jason Kephart from Morningstar Research Services explains the draw of model portfolios. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Third-party model portfolios have gained traction with financial advisors, and a few asset managers in the space are teaming up on different platforms. Joining me today to discuss some of these hookups is Jason Kephart. Jason is a strategist with Morningstar's Multi-Asset Funds Research Team. Hi, Jason. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me, Susan. So let's start out by broadly discussing what model portfolios in general offer to advisors. Sure. Model portfolios are basically there for advisors who are looking for more free time. Whether it's the focus on things like financial planning that might be a a better value add for clients than just portfolio management, or if they want to focus on things like growing their business or managing their business. A lot of REAs are basically small business owners, and time is a commodity they just really can't get enough of. So model portfolios allow them to outsource some or all of their investment management responsibilities. We've heard anecdotally that a lot of advisors will start using them on kind of their smaller clients, and as they get more comfortable with the models, they move them up to larger clients, while they still use the real hands-on touch for their their ultra-high net worth clients. So now, typically, these model portfolios feature asset allocations and funds from a single asset manager, but we're starting to see some managers, asset managers, pair up on a few different platforms. Why is that happening, do you think? Yeah, it's, it's a pretty interesting trend we're starting to see. Open architecture, um, you know, advisor or asset managers using non-proprietary funds in their strategies isn't really new. But what we're seeing that's new is more deliberate team-ups. And I think what this does is really bring to fore, um, you know, it's great when you can find two firms that have complementary strengths that can kind of come together and create a really more interesting portfolio. Um, you know, it's rare that any one firm is going to be the best in class at every asset class you're going to want to have in a portfolio. So in a lot of ways, it makes sense for these firms to kind of collaborate and offer, you know, the strongest portfolio possible. So one of those pair-ups, one of those partnerships you talked about is Wisdom Tree and PIMCO. How does that relationship work? So this is kind of a cl- like a, more of the classic team-up I think you'd expect to see. Um, you know, Wisdom Tree has um, done a lot of research on factors and different um, index, active indexing strategies. And so they're using their proprietary um, equity ETFs. But on the fixed income side, they're leaning on PIMCO to, do, to manage the fixed income portfolio. So you're getting PIMCO's expertise in actively managing bond strategies paired very thoughtfully with Wisdom Tree's um, research into different equity strategies. So that's, I think, the kind of classic thing you'd kind of expect to see where um, passive ETFs, passive equity ETFs, and active bond strategies, that's kind of a typical um, hybrid approach we see, but it's not always what we're seeing in these model team-ups, though, which is pretty interesting. Another example is New York Life and AMG. How is that pairing structured? So that's even more interesting because there's a third player involved, Wilshire, a very well-known investment consultant. So AMG and New York Life have kind of come together and hired Wilshire collectively, and Wilshire is picking the best of funds from both New York Life's options and AMG's options 
to create model portfolios. Right now, they're focused on income. Um, but it's, an, it's another very interesting approach to kind of the space that is really quickly evolving. So I think we're going to see a lot of things like this where they're kind of unusual, but they're, you know, there is potential there. We're also seeing some of what you've called these super team-ups. Um, for example, Vanguard and American Funds um, have sort of joined forces on a couple of different platforms, right? Yeah, and so that's, I think, oh, one of the really interesting ones. We're seeing like firms on the top five really start to kind of work more collaborative, collaboratively together, whereas I think it's you know, always been a very competitive uh, world out there in asset management. And so what's interesting about the American Fund Vanguard team-up as, uh, you know, compare it to the Wisdom Tree PIMCO one where it's your classic, classic passive equity and active bonds. Well, American funds, their value add really is in their stro- really strong um, equity strategies. So they're not going to give up that. So they're pairing you know, their active equity strategy and some active fixed income strategies with Vanguard income, or ETFs, which helps keep costs low, which I think advisors really like, but also doesn't give up that American fund strength of security selection and on both the equity and fixed income side. So I think that's one It's still very new, so it's yet to really been t- be tested. But that's one I think we're going to be keeping a close eye on because that's a really, on paper, a very compelling partnership. And then um, lastly, we this last partnership also involves PIMCO, and it's PIMCO and BlackRock teaming up. How's that one work? PIMCO's bonds are showing up everywhere. <laughs> um, yeah. And so for this BlackRock PIMCO one, this is another income-focused model. Um, outcome-oriented models are very popular, in, in, at least in the product development phase. Um, and so this is one that pairs BlackRock's Michael Fredericks, a well-known multi-asset income manager that we think very highly of, with um, his expertise, but also using some PIMCO bond funds to get some diversity of thought in the diff- different kind of income strategies. Obviously, BlackRock has very well-renowned um, bond managers on their own side, like Rick Reeder. But I think just getting that diversity of thought could be really beneficial from a diversification standpoint. And lastly, Jason, do you expect to see more of these hookups going forward, and why? I think so, and I think it makes sense um, on a lot of levels. First, on the complementary skill sets. If firms are really reaching out to firms that can complement each other well, that's a pretty compelling opportunity. And I think on the more practical side, from a servicing advisor's standpoint, when you have Vanguard and American Funds uh, sales teams there to be able to service an advisor, that just makes it easier to get the information to the advisor and you know, help them understand what's going on and why and deliver that message back to their clients. Well, Jason, thank you for your time today to help us walk us through this new development, this news in the model portfolio landscape. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski. Thanks for tuning in. Next, Russ Kimmel from Morningstar Research Services shines a light on struggling growth funds. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Small and mid-cap growth funds have been laggards this year compared to funds in other domestic style box categories. Joining me today to discuss why and discuss a few well-regarded funds in these categories that are struggling this year is Russ Kinnell. Russ is Morningstar's Director of Manager Research and Editor of Morningstar Fund Investor. Hi, Russ. Thanks for being here. Glad to be here. So let's talk a little bit about the performance of smaller and mid-cap growth funds this year. Uh, They've fallen behind larger cap funds and behind value funds. So what's what's been going on here? Uh, you know, I think it's just kind of a pause after a really nice run. They had a great 2020 uh, companies that were one small caps like Zoom, et cetera, taking off. So it seems like we're just kind of giving some of that back, but also uh, on the, the value side, some of the 
those sectors like financials and energy are coming going on strong, which uh, leaves the small mid-growth funds out in the cold. So Russ, let's pivot and talk a little bit about some funds in particular that are highly rated in the small and mid-cap growth categories, but that are kind of slumping this year. Uh, the first being Harbor Small Cap Growth. Um, we assign it a Morningstar analyst rating of bronze, and it's landing in the small growth category's bottom quartile. What's going on there? Uh, yeah, this is a, a fund that's sub-advised by Westfield, uh, and it's it's a very good fund, uh, but biotech has, has been uh, really uh, hurting the fund this year. If you play in small cap biotech names, it's almost inevitable that there's going to be a year when a few of them uh, blow up on you, or at least get take take a big hit because these are among the most volatile stocks and that's uh, just sort of uh, baked in uh, to, to the story. So uh, we do still like the fund. This isn't changing our uh, views of the fund, but it is having a rough year. Now, another well-regarded small growth fund that we also assign a bronze rating to is Artisan Small Cap. Um, and that one's even doing more poorly. <laughs> uh, it's landing in its categories bottom 5% so far this year. So what's what's been going on there? Yeah, this is a fund that's uh, very aggressive, uh, likes to find companies that are growing fast and are about to grow even faster due to a catalyst. Uh, and so that means pretty high valuations and therefore almost all tech and healthcare. Uh, and put all that together, it means uh, these are companies that are very vulnerable to bad news because so much good news is priced in. So in this case, a few of their names are, uh, have, have disappointed uh, and that's really hurt the fund bad this year. So moving up the market cap ladder, uh, we have Jackson Square SMID cap growth, and it earns a bronze rating for some of its share classes and a silver rating for its other share classes. And it's bringing up the rear in the mid cap growth category this year. What's been going on with that? Fund? Yeah, you know, it's funny because it's uh, got uh, sector weights and, and uh, valuations pretty much in line with the category. So you wouldn't expect uh, a big swing, except that it's a very focused portfolio of just 30 names. And that's what's going on here is a few of those top names uh, have been hit. There's no real uh, theme to those names, but uh, they, they've been hit pretty hard. And uh, that's really uh, hurt the fun this year. Well, Russ, thank you for your time today and for giving us some perspective on what's been going on with small and mid-cap growth funds. We appreciate it. You're welcome. I'm Susan Chubinsky with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. And lastly, Tim Steffen, the Director of Tax Planning for Baird, joins Christine Benz for Morningstar, Inc. Hi, I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. We're in the fourth quarter, and that means the clock is ticking on the 2021 tax year. Joining me to discuss some year-end tax and financial planning to-dos is Tim Steffen. He's Director of Tax Planning for Baird. Tim, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Christine. Tim, let's talk about strategies that investors should have on their radar as 2021 winds down. You like to say that even though it is wise to think about some year-end planning strategies, you should still think of it, this is sort of a multi-year tax planning process. Can you talk about that? Yeah, tax planning in general should always be done with a view towards multiple years. It's not just about what you do this year, because really anything you do this year is something you may not be able to do next year. Or if you miss the window to do it this year, you can do it next year. So uh, rather than just thinking about what are the things I have to rush to at the end of this year, think about how your situation may be changing from one year to the next. For example, uh, if you're retiring, your income next year might be a lot lower than what it is this year. So that might drive some of the decisions you make. If you sold a business or you're selling a business next year, 
that can drive some of the decisions you might make. Uh, maybe you were out of work this year, like a lot of people were, and you're just getting back into the workforce. Next year might be a higher income year for you. So keep all the keep the big picture in mind about how your situation might change from one year to the next. And that can drive a lot of the decisions. There are outside factors to consider as well, tax law changes, which we'll talk about, but um, understand your own situation too. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about market environment because Morningstar.com is an investing site. And I think investors sometimes hear that they should be scouting around for tax loss candidates and their taxable portfolios. We've had a great market environment. My guess is that most investors don't have uh, tax losses in their portfolios, and if they do, they're not big. But do you have any overarching guidance you can share for investors who are looking to trim their investment-related tax bills? Yeah. So, uh, you know, first of all, get a snapshot of where you're at right now. If, if you're doing your own trading, you probably have a good handle. If you've got a managed account, maybe you don't know exactly where you're at. Uh, if you've got a mutual fund portfolio, you might be getting capital gain distributions yet this year that can kind of throw a wrench into your plans. But try to understand as best you can where you're at right now in terms of gains and losses. Now, a lot of people like to try and net the losses against the gains. Obviously, you'd rather not have losses. And as you right. said, there may not be as many out there this year as there were in prior years. That's a good thing. You'd, you'd rather have gains and losses. But if you have some losses, maybe use this as an opportunity to help offset some of the gains you've got. Um, you know, look at your, your, your allocation. Has your allocation gotten out of whack during the course of the year? Maybe year end is a good time to think about rebalancing and, and using some of those losses to offset some of the gains and, and, and again, zeroing out your tax position. Look at where you are in the capital gains brackets. You know, most people think of capital gains as 15%, but that's really not true necessarily in all cases. Really low-income people might have a 0% capital gain situation. If you're in that case, take advantage of it. Use Realize some gains at a 0% tax rate if you can. Be aware of the breakpoints then as you move into the, the 15 to the 20%, and maybe under some of these new proposals that are out there, perhaps a 25% rate now. Uh, and then also uh, be aware of the 3.8% net investment income tax that's out there. So understand the marginal cost of your gains and take advantage of the lower brackets to the extent you can. Okay. You alluded to this House Ways and Means Committee tax proposal. It's very wide ranging, but one of the provisions does relate to what's called the backdoor Roth IRA. And I know that's very popular among many of our readers and viewers on Morningstar.com. So can you talk about how that might change going forward and how the backdoor Roth IRA and the mega backdoor Roth IRA may be over starting with next year. Yeah, so just to quickly explain what we're talking about here, the, the, the backdoor Roth, the mega backdoor Roth, they've always been a way for people to get money into a Roth IRA that otherwise might not be eligible because your income is too high, for example. Um, so what the, these techniques allow you to do is maybe with the backdoor Roth, put money into a traditional IRA that you don't get a deduction for, and then immediately convert that into the Roth. It's been a technique people have used for the last decade or so. It was never intended to work this way, but it's one of those loopholes that all the great planners discovered and people have been taking advantage of it. And it feels like the gravy train's coming to an end on that. The, the latest congressional proposal would effectively eliminate that technique through a, a couple of different ways. One would be saying, when you do a conversion, you can only convert dollars that would have been taxable which means if you've got after-tax money in that traditional IRA, you won't be able to convert it to a Roth anymore. Uh, now that wouldn't be effective until next year, until 2022, if it even passes. But if it does, that would be the end of the backdoor Roth. So if you're somebody who's done that on an annual basis, make sure you get it done this calendar year. And that doesn't mean 
make your contribution early next year for 2021 means you got to have the whole thing done, the contribution and the conversion done before the end of this calendar year. The other one is the mega backdoor that involves more with employer plans, putting extra money into your 401k or your your, your 403b on an after-tax basis if you can, and then immediately converting that to a Roth 401k or even a Roth IRA. The latest proposal would say you can't do that anymore either. No more after-tax money in employer plans. So this would be your last year, 2021, might be the last year to take advantage of those techniques. So I, if it's something you've done in the past, get going on it, make sure you can do it this year because this might be your last opportunity. Okay, I wanna talk about people who are retired and are subject to required minimum distributions. RMDs were paused for 2020, they're back on for 2021. So can you walk through some considerations for people who are over age 72 and subject to those RMDs? Well, the first thing I would tell you is make sure you take your RMD. Uh, like you said, they were off last year, they are back on. There's no expectation that they're gonna be waived again for this year. So if you've been holding out, time to face reality, you're gonna to have to take the distribution this year. And don't miss it because it's a 50% penalty if you don't take it out on what you should have taken. So it's a big penalty, make sure you take it out. Uh, in terms of when, you know, taking it, it doesn't matter when during the year you do it, you can do it now or on December 31st, it doesn't really matter. Just make sure it's out before the end of the calendar year. Um, if you're looking for ways to minimize the tax cost on that, there's not a lot of great techniques out there for RMDs, it's just basically income. So you would offset that just like any other ordinary or high income year that you might have. The one that is unique to RMDs is this qualified charitable distribution, the ability to have your RMD go directly to a charity, in which case then you, you don't have to report the RMD as income. You don't get a charitable deduction either, but you don't have to report the RMD as income. For somebody who is charitably inclined, but doesn't itemize because the standard deduction is so high, you don't give that much to charity, this can be a great way to get a tax benefit for your charitable contributions against your RMDs. Other than that, it's just, it's all the normal tax reduction techniques. You can still take your RMD out and, and keep it and do a qualified charitable distribution with other dollars in your IRA. You know, the QCD doesn't have to be your RMD, but it can be. Um, uh, minimize other sources of income if you can to keep the RMD from falling into a higher tax bracket, et cetera. Um, maybe the other one is if you're somebody who turns 72 this year in 2021, we're in, uh, you have the ability to delay your RMD until April of next year, but then you have to take two next year. You might not want to do that. You might want to take one this year and then next year, let, take next year's next year. Rather than doubling up, uh, probably just take them in every year when you, when you have to start taking them. Now, there's a little bit of a disconnect between the QCD age and the RMD age. Can you walk through that? Yeah, this is something that came about as part of the SECURE Act, I think it was a couple of years ago is where this one changed. RMDs had always been for as long as we know, age 70 and a half. The year you turn 70 and a half is when you have to start taking distributions. They also tied that to the qualified charitable distribution and said that qualified charitable distributions are also done at age 70 and a half. When they moved the RMD age up to 72, they left qualified charitable distributions at 70 and a half. So now that means you can take money out of your IRA and have it sent directly to charity, not have to report it as income, even before you get to RMDs. You're still capped at the $100,000 maximum you can do the QCD on and all the other rules on that still apply. But you have the ability to do a QCD before you even get to RMDs. The advantage of doing that is your IRA balance gets a little lower because of the QCDs you've done, which makes that first year's RMD just that much smaller. So you can kind of hedge your, your RMDs a little bit earlier on if you want to do those early QCDs. 
How about for people who are charitably inclined who aren't yet eligible to do the QCDs? Uh, Year-end is often a time where people think about charitable giving. Can you discuss some strategies for people who aren't uh, yet 70 and a half? Sure. You, you know, once you're 59 and a half, you can always take money out of the IRA and turn on and give it to charity if you want. You have to report it as income and then you get the deduction to offset it. And for the most part, it's a direct offset, maybe not exactly. Um, but if you're looking for other ways to uh, meet some charitable obligations without touching your IRA, um, probably the best one out there is giving appreciated property. We talked about the gains in the portfolios this year. If you've got some appreciated assets, giving those to charity is a great way to meet a charitable obligation while avoiding the tax on that gain. Big thing there, make sure you held the position for at least a year. If it's considered short-term property, your deduction is only equal to your basis, and that's not what you want to do at all. So appreciated assets are a great way to meet some charitable obligations. Um, be aware of the limitations on deducting charitable gifts. Uh, you know, generally, appreciated stocks can offset up to 30% of your income. Cash is normally 60%. There is a provision this year that allows you to offset up to 100% of your income with cash gifts. I don't know that makes a lot of sense for most people, but it does give you the ability, if you want to be very charitable in, in this year, to offset all of your income with charitable giving. Maybe not the most tax efficient way to do it, but it can be done. Okay, Tim, you've given us all a good list of to-dos to get working on between now and year end. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me again, Christine. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.